Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Worm, a Daily Planet Films podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss the hit web serial Worm week by week, arc by arc. My name is Matt Freeman, your host and nefarious bomb-dropping government agent, and I am joined as always by my co-host and giant mutated beetle that I fly around on, Scott Daly. Scott, how are you doing this week? I am doing really good, Matt. And as you said, this is the podcast where you, a disturbingly unhinged worm expert, guide me, a first-time reader, through the war, death, explosions, and horribly mutated bugs and people as I inspect, interpret, and even speculate on what the story is and where it is going. This week, Matt, we are tackling part one of arc 17, the arc 14, Prey. I got ahead of myself. No, we're not there yet. Uh, Prey, uh, this covers chapters 14.1 through 14.7. This was a really long arc, so we had to break it in two. This is the first part. Um, it, it feels like we're, we're really headed, Matt, with this arc into the climax of this whole Slaughterhouse-Nine story. Um, things are ramping up towards that third act moment, um, and there's a lot of action here and, and a, lot of, a lot of theme uh, realization coming to play in this arc. Um, and, and so I, I'm really ready for this. I was really ramped up. I'm, I'm kind of bummed. I had to stop reading on chapter seven or chapter seven. Yeah. But, uh, this is, this is a good one. Yeah. Things are getting really intense and, and exciting and, and fun here. I didn't want to say that we were planning on stopping at, at 14, six and, uh, at Wildbo's urging, actually we read through 14, seven because I, I think his sense was that that was a more organic break for the story. And I agree. I thought that the, the, the place where we ended was a really satisfying place to end actually even though it was the middle of an arc so um did, did you agree with that i did generally i think the the thing that i i ended up liking about where fourteen six left us is it is it felt like the end of the amy storyline and i'm not saying she's totally done but she makes this big choice in fourteen six and leaves the rest of our group and then they move on and start dealing with the other problems they had so that felt like an end to that but everything else in the arc ends better on 14.7 absolutely mm-hmm. yeah um yeah that, that, that makes sense um yeah so scott why don't we move into uh discussing right. the comments and questions let's do it so first of all uh, uh wildbo dropped by and, and gave us some feedback uh one one thing that he says is i know you guys didn't have as much time to tackle this last arc uh um because we we had some scheduling difficulties um and, and less days of, of prep time, and it was a longer arc. So were there any thoughts on the effects of the more condensed slash fast read coupled with the intensity of what's going on? Um, I, I definitely have some some thoughts on that, but Scott, why don't you go first? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely more stressful. Um, I basically sat down on uh, the Sunday before we recorded and read at a coffee house all day. Like I just sat down all day at a coffee house and read through it once and then read slowly through it. I didn't get all the way through it that day, but um, it was definitely the condensed schedule definitely stressed me out more, especially since this was 13 was a longer arc. Um, the recording time stressed me out more because I knew we were trying to fit a lot in one session. Um, I'm much less stressed about that today because we have so much less to cover in uh, probably, probably let's be honest, the same amount of time we always take, but um yeah, I mean, I think I, I like the more time. I mean, I think we were able to do it. I felt it was ironic that I felt more prepared about uh, our arc 13 discussion than I did about the one we did on on that Friday that that we had so mm-hmm. much more time to prep for. I don't know why. I think maybe it was fresher on my mind or maybe I, I'm not sure why that was. 
Yeah, I think it might have just been that like we knew we had to be prepared for it because we had to fit in so much. Like for my part, um, I I had to be a lot more aggressive with paring down uh, the 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 beats that I was going to summarize to the ones that I really wanted to make sure that I covered, and that meant that like some of the some of the fight scenes I had to I had to basically just be like, and then there was an awesome fight scene here. Whereas in, in other in other arcs, I might have like gone into the back and forth of the battle more, um, and and I think that's fine um i think that there is such a thing as going too far in the direction of, of condensing things but i was actually very happy with the the level to which we condensed last uh last week's um but that's probably about the limit of how much i want to condense things honestly yeah i agree i i think there were probably if i'm being entirely honest there were probably a few things that we could have gone in more detail on um that we just weren't able to um so uh, that that was definitely the upper limit of what I want to try to fit in these shows, because, I mean, the detail, I think, is important. It's it's essential to what we do to really dive into this stuff and, and, and parse through it. Um, but it's so long at times that it's it's hard to do that and still uh, <laughs> create listenable content. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a very interesting um, uh, balancing act in, in, a, in a project like this is is how much is it appropriate to to uh, skip between the the important beats and how much is it important to delve into really minor things because I mean frankly while those writing is so intentional that that really small things can actually matter a lot and so you, you can you can delve in on a really high level of detail if, yeah, if that's what you yeah. want to do so. and I mean there's things that we don't talk about um, that get brought up in, in comments and emails and stuff and I, I wouldn't necessarily say um, that a lot of people say, I think you missed X, Y, Z. And sometimes, sometimes, yeah, we just missed it, but sometimes we just, it didn't rise to the level of importance in our minds that we needed to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. And sometimes I don't, I don't pick things out, um, to talk about because I don't want to prematurely draw Scott's attention to certain things. <laughs> yeah. It's another, yeah. another fact. Because my brain works that way where if, <laughs> even if I do it subconsciously, I'll say, huh, Matt brought this up. I wonder if uh, this is going to matter. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. Like several arcs ago, I'm, I, I very intentionally wasn't like, huh, interesting coils talking about buying his power. What is that? <laughs> Right. Yeah. That one was definitely picked up. I'm like, Scott, I, I can't believe you didn't notice this. And it was just like, I just wasn't like, I wasn't thinking along those lines. I mean, in retrospect, yeah. it's like, yeah, of course, that's what he was talking yeah. about. But your brain's just not there at that time because you don't yeah. even really think that's a thing that exists um, in the world. But right. yeah, no, but I think I think we kind of went off track there a little But uh, to wrap the whole thing up. Uh, yes, I think it was more stressful, but I think probably like Wildbow does, we kind of operate better under that stressful situation. So I think it worked out. I hope it did. I thought I thought last week was a really good episode. But yeah. So so now now that we're now that we're off track, Scott, why don't we talk about um, some 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 other things that we saw in the comments this last week? Yeah, yeah. I don't think we have any specific questions we're going to address because we got a lot of comments about um, the fact that our talk about executing Shatterbird. Um, we got a lot of comments about um, people thinking we were being a little unfair to Taylor. Um, and I made, I made a lot of snarky jokes about that, but I really wanted us, you and I, to dive into that and talk about how, uh, defend our position, I guess. Um, yeah. So you, you take it away and I'll join in as needed. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to start out, Scott, by, by paraphrasing um, something that, that, you, that you said in a conversation that we had about this, 
which is, which is basically just sort of an explicit statement of, of the approach that we're taking here, which I think justifies uh, kind of the tack that we're taking toward Taylor as a character, which is just to say that this is a story. In a, in a story, you have a protagonist, and the protagonist undergoes an arc of growth and change based on their wants and needs. And and through the conflict created by the antagonist, they grow and change. Um, in, in good stories, this growth and this arc are tied to what is called the theme of the story, um, which is the main idea of the work. And um, when when you're when you're looking at Taylor's character through this lens, um, saying that you're being too hard on her is really a category error. It's it's like that's it's impossible to either be too hard or, or or too soft on the character. You're you're judging the character by the standards of what you think the theme of the work is and 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 what you think the character's arc is and yeah. um and 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 so. Um, it's, we're not criticizing her on the grounds of being like good or bad. We're criticizing her only in the sense that the story is asking us to examine her choices through a certain lens. And and I think it's very explicitly doing so. Yeah. I mean, I I completely agree that there's so much talking about Taylor's trauma and, and how that trauma leads to, um, this kind of defense mechanism of categorizing people and, um, how that leads to actions and justifications of actions that um, we probably wouldn't necessarily be okay with, and and an escalation in those justifications, I think, is one of the most important things. That if we look at, at Taylor from the beginning of the story and the, and the actions that she was justifying then, you know, putting spiders on people at a mall and threatening to bite them, um, we've moved so far beyond that now and 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 as you said that's that's very that's very intentional like we're, we're exploring morality and grayness and morality through a character that's that her central conflict is fighting with her own understanding of what being good and what being bad is and like if you're doing that if you're exploring that you have to talk about when she makes decisions um that that seem counter to the type of person she wants to be and um and and seem to be leading her down a path of justifying more and more badness to get what she wants or to get what she needs and that's 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 what we're doing yeah especially when she comes back later and this character herself identifies those choices as having been regrettable um, right. And that's I mean, that's what that's what we're going to see in this arc. There's a lot of um, self-realization in Taylor going on in, in, in arc 14. Um, and she has this way of being able to notice things about herself when she's seeing it in other people. Um, she sees a lot of herself in Amy and, and kind of has moments of realization related to things that she's done in that. And we'll get into all that this week. But I mean, that's that's kind of for me when I read stuff like that, that's confirmation of the the angle that we've interpreted this this work as um and and like i I don't death of the author and all that everyone can get what they want to get out of something but our intent here is to analyze it to analyze the narrative and this this to me is absolutely what the narrative is presenting to us yeah yeah and and to to everything you just said about about um defending defending taylor as a character I, i think the desire to defend taylor comes from a very healthy and understandable place. And, and I even feel the temptation 
to do it when I see other people being what I think of as unfair toward her, because that's really just the basic impulse, the human impulse to stand up for somebody that you care about. But I think that it's actually misplaced here because we're doing critical analysis of a narrative and, and of a character. And um, in fact, what we need to be doing is suppressing or at least examining our impulse to defend and justify the actions of, of, the, of these characters, particularly because the challenge here is that we have a character who's very good at justifying herself. Uh, so, so we're being challenged by this story to, to keep a, a, a firm critical eye on things. And the only way to not fa fail in this challenge um, is, is to apply this strict scrutiny to what we're seeing in the story. Because like we said, Taylor herself tells us that she regrets a lot of her choices. So if we just give her carte blanche in terms of her justifications, then we're, we're not engaging with the text properly, I think. Yeah. And I think that that is really the, the crux of this whole thing. That, that right there is that when I see people tell me that I'm being mean to Taylor, I'm being unfair to Taylor, um, it usually comes with like a paragraph of them justifying every single one of her actions one by one and like grabbing at anything they can in the story to say why this was the correct decision. And I think you can find that if you look for it because you see Taylor doing it. And, and, and that's what I want to tell people most of all is that you, when you say that stuff like that, you remind me of Taylor. Um, you remind me of her ability to um, take an action and find a way to make it okay. Um, yeah. Because it, it suits what you, what she needs and she wants. Um, and, and I think that's, I think it's, I think the story's doing that on purpose. And I think that's actually a, a testament to the writing of the, the novel um, that you're, mm -hmm. that you do that because you're so far in her head that that's a, that's a tendency to do that. Um, I'm certainly not like, I don't think we've ever just sat down and like picked at every single thing she's done and said, no, don't do this. I would have done this. I think we've always tried to take it from that high narrative level, um, from yeah. that thematic level of what is, what is the story telling us? What, what is the story showing us through Taylor's change so far? Um, and, and I mean, I, I got Like I say it over, I love Taylor. I think she's one of the most fascinating characters ever. Um, but you know what? <laughs> I really like Walter White too, and I would never defend a, some of Walter White's actions. Like, and yeah. and not to say that they're exactly the same type of character, but they are going on on a similar journey where they're flirting with uh, the dark side of certain behaviors. And I mean, I think that's what the story's doing. Yeah, and and speaking of Walter White and and bald fictional characters, um, I wanted to bring in <laughs> perfect. Um, I that's to perfect. I wanted to bring in um, my favorite acronym, which, which I think is a good touchstone for this conversation. Maybe we can hit upon this uh, over the course of the day, but the, the acronym would be WWJLPD, which is, of course, what would Jean-Luc Picard do? Um, so Jean-Luc Picard, if you're familiar with Star Trek The Next Generation, is is a, a sort of a moral paragon. Like That's the point of his character, is that he's... Um, kind of morally unimpunable. Like he has he has character flaws, but none of his character flaws really center around having any kind of moral flaw. Like he he is just the moral ideal almost um of like the, the evolved humanistic sensibility. And I like to imagine like okay, would Jean-Luc Picard condone mind enslaving someone even if they were really bad would Jean-Luc Picard condone executing a prisoner extrajudicially um 
um no obviously like right yeah like like like, like obviously like you, you can imagine how his character would respond to these things so i find that to be a, a useful touchstone because not because i'm saying taylor should be as taylor should be john luke picard what i'm saying is when you find yourself having an urge to just to to justify a character's actions if you ask wwjlpd you will see that jean luke would not justify this <laughs> and then and then that is your your standard of oh i get it now like it's it's a it's a reflection that that forces you to say oh yeah i'm i'm doing a justifying thing and yeah just like the character is yeah i really love this um because you're absolutely right and you've got john luke picard pretty pegged um and since you told me this like i'm doing it with everything that i read and see now um and it, it really it really does help because he i mean i can't think of a, a better paragon of uh like moral um understanding in in any kind of literature or narrative i've seen um that's that's one of his strongest character traits and it's the reason why people like him and the next generation so much um is because of that um mm-hmm. john luke picard would look at the trolley problem and say this is unacceptable we have mm-hmm. to we have to do something um we, i i refuse to play in a game in which these are my options um and that's uh-huh. and that's not always that's not always possible like i understand that there are, are complications and nuances in life and in in this this worm world where you literally have to choose between two terrible choices but the question i always ask myself in that moment is would jean-luc picard have let himself get in a situation in which those were the only two choices in the first place right um and probably not so i i think that's great um i i really like that a lot yeah yeah i have a feeling i have a feeling that people are going to point out to us that where this does and does not apply but again i just want to i just want to mention this the idea here is to say would jean-luc picard try to self-justify like this and and the answer is always no so yeah and we're 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 very very clearly talking about the show jean-luc picard because yes the movies um that character kind of changed a little bit that's yeah that's he's just an action hero in the movies we're not talking about the movies ignore the movies (laughs) he goes nuts so in first contact Uh, good movie not not captain picard no that's yeah all right i think i think we've i think that 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 took some time but it was important for us to lay out our our philosophy and our approach here because otherwise um i I don't want people to to hear us doing what we're doing and interpret that as us ragging on a character um unfairly because it's again that's yeah yeah categorically different from what we're trying to do here and if i ever if i ever catch myself doing that i will absolutely fall on the sword and and say that yeah that's my bad we're being too critical but i i think the things that we've said the 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 important moments of taylor's moral uh shakiness have all been like confirmed by the story itself as being important moments of of moral grayness so Mm -hmm. that to me just reinforces that what we're doing um is is following what the story wants us to do yeah. So yeah, or that's, at the very least is valid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that. Let's yeah. let's talk about this arc fourteen. Let's do it. Yeah. Alrighty. So fourteen one opens up. Taylor wakes up, having fallen asleep on Brian's shoulder, basically, and he hasn't slept at all. There are some definite contrasts here between her behavior here and her attitude the previous night, uh, and basically a lot more compassion on her part. And Brian is clearly extremely um, on edge and twitchy. Yeah, I'm really glad you you pointed out um, that specific 
change in her attitude. Um, and I think I, I, I thought about this a lot because obviously there were a bunch of people that said we were being unfair to Taylor in how she handled that situation. Um, but I, I think, I think that that change is very distinct and intentional here because like you said last week, when Brian confronted her, she was triggered. Um, she, one of the first things she did was jump, was like, think of Emma and Emma jumped in her mind mm-hmm. and like, cause basically it was her best friend confronting her and quote unquote betraying her. And Taylor went into fight or flight mode and she stopped really thinking she either was going to defend herself or she was going to get away. Um, and that's kind of what she did. And she became the survivalist Taylor. Um, and then so so he kept her there because he she kind of manipulated an apology out of him, uh, probably unintentionally. I don't think she was aware that she was doing that, but that's kind of what happened. Um, and now she wakes up the next morning and she doesn't see Brian as her bully. She doesn't see Brian as as Emma, but she sees him as friend, compatriot, innocent person on my side. And then she reacts accordingly. And suddenly we see the Taylor that, that we see a lot of times, which is a really compassionate, caring person who uh, who wants to help, but doesn't always know how to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this just shows us that triggered Taylor is very different from untriggered Taylor. And, and she's she's someone we like and someone who's heroic when she's being her best self. But she definitely falls pretty far when she's when she feels pushed. Yep. Um, and we've seen that over and over again and and it you know we could we could go go on at great length about the the things that trigger her and and why exactly that uh has driven her character in 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 the kind of the more destructive directions actually but uh yeah so so let's move on um Aisha and Alec have returned to the uh to the lair um Aisha gives Taylor a hard time uh, accusing her of using Brian's vulnerability to get closer to him yeah and and like Wildbo does in so many different ways. He takes these tiny little character beat moments and uses them in multiple ways to tell us quick things about the characters. Um, we haven't really ever seen Aisha and how she feels about her brother. She's mostly like really sarcastic and whiny. Um, and, and in that one chapter, we where we were in her head. We got a little into it, but we hadn't seen like does Aisha like does she like Brian? <laughs> um, and I think this moment serves serves to confirm that, that as much as she's a brat, she really does care about her older brother and she's very defensive of him. And she perceives this Taylor as a threat um, or or maybe manipulating him or something. Um, and so it, it, it enforces that. And then it shows once again, kind of Taylor's disconnect between her own perception and others perception of her. Um the fact that we that Aisha sees Taylor as the person that would manipulate events in order just to get closer to Brian is very telling. Um, we know that Taylor was not consciously doing this. Like, I don't think in any of that moment in chapter 1310, Taylor says anything about uh, getting Brian to like her until he brings it up himself. So we know that wasn't going through her head. But it does say something about her that Aisha can look at this character and come to that conclusion on her own. Yeah, yeah, I think I think this is a great little moment. It says a lot about Aisha, and it and it does say a lot about Taylor by reflection. I agree. Um, so Alec also mentions uh, that Brian probably didn't mind it in his normal sardonic way, and he elaborates uh, his opinion that cuddling up with another warm body is a very pleasant experience. Uh, which, of course, in the course of doing so, he reminds us that not all the bodies that he cuddled up with in the past were necessarily willing. Um, and I think it's very intentional here that we're being reminded of this aspect of Alex's power here as we set up this arc. Yeah, it's this chapter one setup 
uh, and it's done in such an organic way that like if you're paying attention you can see it like we did but you might just think it's a good character moment um because yeah what we're doing here is saying uh, we need to remember who alec is um because he while uh, there's a lot of people like him and i understand why people like him but he is kind of a monster um he it doesn't matter what his motivations or the reasons behind it is but he does bad things um and and it's just a great really natural way of bringing that up and Mm -hmm. and kind of showing how much the line of what's acceptable to our group has moved now because at first like taylor was having to really push to morally justify taking control of sophia um the undersiders have now just decided that alec can use his power um and there's really no discussion about it anymore um, so we've moved the line a little bit and, yeah. um, I, I like that that's brought up because it's going to come into play big time near the end of fortunately this section, fortunately we don't have to cliffhanger this till next week, but yeah, yeah, but we'll, we'll see, we'll see Taylor defend the use of the body ceiling to someone else, which definitely highlights the slippage of the moral line there. Yep. Uh, so yeah, this, this image here, I adore this image of Taylor serving the traveler's breakfast, um, and then ballistic taking over the stove. It's just this lovely domestic scene of these villains hanging out and making food together. Yeah, I, I like it too. And, and and again, it shows how every moment in a story can give you something. Um, cause in this moment we have this little Rachel conversation um, where she says you can give the dog some bacon and Rachel reacts just like you think she would, which is like, no, I'm not going to give my dogs human food. That's bad for them. Um, Taylor apologizes and then Rachel follows it up with, but I'll have some, which is a change. And um, that's not the way a normal Rachel conversation with Taylor would end, at least not recently. Um, And it's a tiny little setup that pays off like almost immediately after their conversation in the chapter. But I think that's like a flag that like they're maybe reaching a point where they can reach some sort of catharsis. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that sets that up. But I also think I also think you're absolutely right that. ballistic taking over the stove says something about his team and it's like all this stuff is saying stuff and it's happening just so organically that you don't even realize you're being set up for stuff Mm -hmm. yeah that makes sense so um taylor asks rachel about bastard uh the the new puppy which leads to a conversation about siberian um because siberian gave her the puppy and Tattletale first puts forth that Siberian is actually an actor in some sense, and that the feral angle that she was putting forth to Rachel is fake. Um, and Tattletale has also figured out, after seeing Gru's monochrome man, that Siberian might be a projection, uh, and that there might be a real vulnerable body somewhere. Uh, and I just wanted to have an aside that it kind of goes without saying at this point in the story, but if it weren't for the tattletale factor, it would actually be pretty lame and annoying that our plucky young heroes have managed to figure out that Siberian is a projection after years of the whole project uh, protectorate failing to grasp this fact. But, <laughs> but, but actually like we've grown to accept that this is just tattletales thing and it's, it's neither, neither surprising nor like, like, uh, breaking you out of the story that, that she's the one to figure this out. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, I, I like, I like that. This is one of the many times that the tattletale element is used, uh, well. Yeah. She's a very effective tool, um, for getting information to our characters in a way that makes us say, are they just learning this because they're the protagonists? And that's mm-hmm. just, yeah, I agree. Um, I'm curious if you realized on your first read through that black and white, black and white, swirly Brian was Siberian. Um, in retrospect, it was like 
being black and white and having like swirls and being in, impenetrable and super strong was like a hint, but it just never occurred to me. Like I, I just, I hadn't, my head hadn't gone there with what Siberian was. So I think, I think what happened with me was I was largely just confused because I think I, I think I recognized it as Siberian's power, but I didn't at all make the connection of like, but Brian is still chained to the wall. Like, I think if anything, my brain was like, did he turn into that and then turn back into his self that was chained to the wall or something? <laughs> like, even though there's no, there's no like text to support that. Um, so I, I did not, I, I think I did grasp that it was Siberian's power, but I did not, I didn't like, I didn't go to the point of being like, Oh, Siberian's a projection. I um, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting because like, Obviously, I didn't I didn't like try to point it out or, or whatever last week, but it's one of those places where I suspect there's a wide range of 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 reactions to to that scene. Yeah. Yeah. Um, other than that, I did really like Rachel's reaction to this whole conversation um, because she she feels lied to and betrayed um, because like the, as much as she didn't trust Siberian and I really think she would never have gone with her. There was this moment where she felt understood and she felt like she could relax and be herself around a person that a person got her. And I think, um, she just like gets let down again. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I, I'm not a hundred percent convinced. Like, I think obviously we learned Siberian is a projection and it's an old dude. Um, I, I don't think it's, she was fully bullshitting Rachel when she was talking to her. And I think, Siberian and whoever is controlling her believes those things to a certain extent, but it was definitely acting. It was definitely at least to Rachel putting on a show for her. Um, and that just like puts her in a, in a vulnerable position. And I think that kind of, um, like leads to the conversation we're about to have, um, mm-hmm. it leads to Rachel to a point where she reaches out to Taylor in some way because she's feeling betrayed by another human. Um, and so she, she finally decides to, to take a shot on her, her friend again. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It, the, the the last arc was definitely setting up the context through which they could reestablish some kind of of trusting friendship, and and this is an important step, I think, in in that. So here we have another um, another Taylor trying to be Rachel's friend while Rachel sort of blows her off while probably secretly appreciating it moment, uh, or at least <laughs> yeah. that's how I always see these moments. Yeah, and, and it's a really it's a really great conversation. I loved it so much. We don't have time to go through every piece of nuance of it but like you you can kind of see taylor like wear down rachel's defenses um just like like rachel's reaction is to go those are just words but then she keeps seeing taylor like back up her words when it comes Mm -hmm. to her and and like it's at a point where like you know that rachel is so desperate to trust taylor again like she really wants to she really Mm -hmm. wants to be able to but she just she's not sure if she can and like I think we're finally getting to a place where she feels comfortable she can. And this worries me. It's like, I really hope Taylor doesn't screw this pro this poor girl over again. Like, I think mm-hmm. like I worry that this falling out with coil that's going to happen in the future, like it's just going to happen. It's very clear that that's going to happen, that Rachel could be manipulated or perceive it as betrayal. Um, and I think that will be the, the last straw for that friendship. Um, it, I think it's got a place where it can be good going forward, but that, that, that could damage it. And I'm worried about that because I had I care about Rachel so much. She's such like underneath it all. She's such a decent person who just wants connection. And it's so heartbreaking. Yeah. I think that's kind of masterful how this, this character is actually like 
introduced in a very unlikable way and consistently behaves in a very unlikable way. But after peeking into her head and understanding her character, it, it makes her very sympathetic. I, I love this aspect yeah, of the story. Yeah, and I, like, I see her as a puppy dog now, and I, I think that's intentional. That like you, <laughs> you start to see her that way, and you, you pity her to a certain extent. And you, I just I want I want this friendship for her, not just so my prediction was correct, but because I want this for the character. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it seems like an important part of her development. So they contact Cherish on the phone uh, to ask for clarification on the Siberian issue because they figure Cherish would know if Siberian was a, was a projection because her power would allow her to basically see what was going on. Um, and Cherish simply demands two minutes to address everyone in exchange for this information. And it's not at all a creepy request. Yeah. So they conclude that she's probably planning to sow division between them. Uh, so, so they get a book and they say, okay, we're going to pass the book around. Everyone's going to close their eyes. And if you have a horrible, terrible secret that no one else can know, then rip out a page toward the back of the book. And if you wouldn't really mind the dish, the, the dirt being dished out on you in front of everyone, then rip out a lower page number. Um, and everyone does this and there's in the end wadded up in the pile of, of book pages. There's a 222 who Alec immediately admits to being, which is hilarious. <laughs> I love that. Uh, and, and the 325. Um, so, so, so here, um, Lisa basically says, just going by what I know about our groups, I think our team is going to be more concerned about what outsiders think. You guys are going to be more concerned about what your teammates think. Am I wrong? So she uses this, this to justify basically kicking the travelers out and having the undersiders just stick around and, and listen to Cherish's address. Yeah, and it's such a perfect and simple way to compare how these two teams operate and function, right? Um, mm -hmm. it, it, it makes sense why the undersiders seem to function better as a unit than the travelers, because the travelers keep secrets from each other. The undersiders circle their wagons and generally... Um, everyone in them knows secrets and they just want to keep them from other people. Um, really makes you wonder what that 325 is though. Yeah. <laughs> my guess yeah. is, my guess is that it's trickster knowing something about what happened in Noel that, that he's not comfortable sharing with the rest of the group, but I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I love this just like as a story element of being like, okay, we don't know what it is. We don't know who it is, but we know that someone has a terrible secret now. Right. Um, right. So, so that's, that's fantastic. Um, so yeah, um, the travelers leave and the undersiders call Cherish and Cherish starts going in on all the characters and she's sort of trying to do what we've seen Tattletale do a bunch of times where she just goes at people on, on their weak points, but she does it kind of differently and, and it's, I think, less effective in general. So like she starts, she starts in on Alec, she's going over his history of, as a murderer and rapist and he's basically just like sort of justifies it, but also is just like, yeah, it was, it was pretty screwed up. Um, these guys already know about that and they already know how I feel about it. So there's kind of no point to this. Uh, and, <laughs> and then she tells Gru that Bonesaw is preparing to come after him again and to make it worse this time, which obviously Brian doesn't like to hear, but I, I don't think it like breaks him the way she intends it to. Um, no. She tells Rachel that Taylor is going to betray her again, which actually just annoys Rachel. Um, and uh, yeah. 
Yeah, I think it, it does show the limitations of her power, that she can only read off emotions. She can't fully understand the people. And, and if she were able to fully understand them, she would know that this line of attack uh, isn't going to really work. Um, mm-hmm. But this is really interesting because, like, Cherish plays into Gru and Rachel's own insecurities. For Like, we know Gru is, like, really traumatized and, like, constantly thinking about what Bonesaw did and, like, can't sleep. And Cherish plays into that. We know that Rachel is... One of the forefront things on her mind is her ability to trust Taylor and whether she can or not. So Cherish plays into that. But then Alec seems to be her trying to play off the other people by by like sowing seeds of discord between them by revealing something about him. And that and that made me think that maybe that's not what she's doing. Maybe she's playing into Alec's insecurity, too, um, Mm -hmm. because like. I, I really wonder if there there was some part of Alec that was really, really actually seriously worried about what Cherish would say. Um, he did mm-hmm. write down the 225 um, mm-hmm. and, and, and Alec, it's just Alec to play it off in his Alec-y way um, to make it seem like it's not affecting him. Or um, I, I want, I, it makes me think that there's something more complicated and deeper going down um, underneath the, the, the surface on that one, um, because it would certainly line up that she's playing off each of their individual securities more. Um, and, and that's just, that's that, that I think becomes clear the more I look at it and the more I think about it. Yeah, that's, that's true. It's like, she, she's trying to get under Gru's skin. She's trying to get under Rachel's skin. Um, it, it would be, it would be breaking the pattern if she wasn't specifically trying to get under Alex's skin here. And, and I guess maybe one interpretation, which we kind of have some evidence for from his POV is that, Maybe this kind of stuff does bother him more than he lets on because he's so he's so consistently sarcastic yeah. about everything that, that you can't really judge based on his behavior, whether yeah. he takes it seriously or not. I think he just doesn't know how to like he, he his emotions are really complicated because they're they're really muted and he has no idea how to express them. And I think sarcasm is an easy way to get away with it. And I think the fact that he wrote down 225 and then as soon as confronted with the the possibility that he'll be exposed for it. He admits to it and then plays it off as kind of a joke. I was just fucking with them. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that's very interesting. Um, but let's, yeah. let's move on because we'll talk about that for a while, but sure. that's not really going to play in anything specifically in this arc, but just, sure. just putting in the old brain. Yeah. So her, her two minutes are up. So Cherish tells them about Siberian's body, which is apparently a middle-aged man, unkept, doesn't eat much, um, and right now Siberian, uh, the the projection of Siberian is chasing one of the candidates. Yeah, and, and I don't know how much this, what Cherish is telling them is going to end up being totally true, but as soon as we learn that Siberian is like an old dude, um, a lot of his character kind of clicked into place for me, because like he, he projects as this beautiful, tall, naked woman. And it, it feels like the classic dude picks a female character in an MMO game thing. Like, and this is just, it feels like to me. And I was like, oh, yeah, now he's kind of creepy on top of being a monster. So, I, I mean, obviously, this could go in a completely different direction. But that's that's the, the, the feel I got from him as soon as I learned this information. Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely definitely being intentionally set up as, as like a creepy old man. Um and it's it's almost like a Wizard of Oz moment where the curtain is being pulled back on this, um, you know, terrifying otherworldly thing that's so invulnerable that even the top heroes are afraid of her. Um, and it's it's a creepy old murder hobo. Yeah. And I'm so glad that this is here, though, because I was 
really worried about Siberian just being this invincible, unstoppable thing with no weakness. And this is a very good and understandable weakness. It's like a very good trade-off between amount of power with with amount of vulnerability. And I, I like it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so at this point, since Taylor's mask is destroyed, she uses a scarf and a clustering of bugs to hide her face as they go out on their adventure. Yeah, so um, this is never referenced again <laughs> throughout the rest of the arc, but she's got that spider, that bug mask on through everything, right? Because we just mm-hmm. move, like, from this point on, we're just going to move beat to beat with almost no stop. Um, that's gross. <laughs> yeah. And, like, imagine what she looks like right now. Like, it's it's crazy. Um, and right. again, it has to do with she doesn't even perceive this. She doesn't even like she's got to look creepy as shit right now. She has bugs crawling all over her face. Yeah, I mean, if if you didn't know that her mask was destroyed, you'd be forced to to conclude that like, oh, she's she's really going off the deep end now. She's basically <laughs> making bugs part of her costume permanently now. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So moving on to fourteen point two. And that was a very uh, long first chapter, but yeah. that that was a very dense first chapter. I'm glad we spent the time on it. We did because it's setting up so many important things. Um, and it it. It was great. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I really appreciate that you pointed out long ago that the first chapters always set things up because there was a lot of important setup there. So Amy, Amy Dallin slash Panacea is running from Siberian um, who keeps catching her and biting off a tip of her finger and then letting her go and then catching her and biting off another tip of her finger and letting her go. Um, our characters watch not intervening yet because they can't really do anything against the unstoppable force that just plunges through walls without, without resistance. Yeah, this is really gross. Um, and it's kind of even more gross now that we know Siberian is just a projection and she's not like, like, I, I don't know why, maybe it's just me being weird, but like if, if she was at least getting nourishment from the people she was eating, <laughs> maybe it's slightly less weird, but like she's not doing it for any tangible reason it's just literally to be disturbing and gross yeah and it's, awful it's this pure like pointless indulgence right, basically right yeah. so once again uh skitter thinks about how somebody uh panacea this time isn't using her power to the fullest and how skitter could do it way better yeah this is the second time in as many weeks that we've seen this and um i, I think i think it says something about taylor um uh, like a, a while back, like I made that big prediction that I think the power was some kind of parasite. And because parasites are bug-like, um, Taylor would eventually learn to control it and by extension control other people. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say right now that that's wrong. Um, whatever this passenger is, it, it's not what I was thinking when I made that prediction. And um, with with the number of like people able to control other people, power is currently in play now. I feel like that on its own would be not a great addition. Um, so instead, I read this as like Taylor's like growing confidence and how that might be leading to a bit of a superiority complex. Um, her powers make her think better and faster than most people out there. And she's starting to get a little annoyed that everyone else isn't like that. Um, I-, I called her the-, the queen bee like God, 10 arcs ago now or something, um, because in any crisis situation, she seems to just like take charge and, and issue commands and and control the battlefield through her power and i'm even more convinced now that that's going to be her role going forward that she's not going to literally control people's powers but she's like the best micromanager ever um Mm -hmm. and and so that's kind of what i read this as is like her growing frustration with uh people not using their powers correctly and her need to take over and um 
issue commands to them instead of letting them just do it themselves. Yeah, so so I think that definitely is a, an important character beat showing Taylor's, like you said, kind of growing sense of superiority and um and 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 all that. But but also I think that there's some legitimacy to her observation here that Panacea um indeed as a character is not using her power to the fullest because she has to be basically pushed and cajoled into doing the helpful things she does later in the chapter. Sure. As far as we know, she's never done anything like that. Like as far as she, she thinks of her power as healing and her power is like practically limitless in terms yeah. of like what she can make with biology, but she just doesn't explore that at all. And that's completely contrary to how, to how Taylor approaches her power. And, and that's interesting too. Yeah, absolutely. I, I won't say that, that Taylor is like, uh, I don't want people to jump on me when I say she has a superiority complex or anything. Um, I fully agree that that Amy is not using her power to its fullest potential. Um, and, and I think Taylor even says, you know, she's not a warrior. She's never had to f- think in these life or death situations like this. Um, so, yeah, that's that's very accurate. Yeah. yeah. So Skidder tries to use her bugs to provide cover for Amy using decoy swarm clones. And at first, Amy thinks Skidder is attacking her. But eventually clues in. Um, and in the meantime, Skidder is using her power to search for Siberian's real body. Yeah, there's there's a moment here with like um, she's trying to to direct Amy and look for Siberian at the same time. And Tattletail just asks her, are you still looking for the real Siberian? And she like snaps at her mm-hmm. um, like I was very surprised by the, the like just how angry Taylor is in this moment. Um, like she says. Uh, she says, I kept my mouth shut, pointless to waste my breath or dedicate any focus on for arguing when I could be trying to deal with Siberian. And it's like, uh, to me, it was just Tattletail being like, give me an update. How's it going? Right. Um, and she like loses it. And I, this is very surprising. I think like she's just just really stressed and she's frustrated by how she's she like starts off frustrated by how Amy is using her power. Right. And then she's frustrated that Amy like is resisting her. And like she's like everyone just let me do me like let me do it and i I guess that puts her to a point of 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 anger but it was just very surprising to me for me this reinforced this idea that that i have you know for a couple arcs now that she kind of treats tattletale like crap and takes her for granted yeah yeah um and because it's like she didn't come on she didn't deserve that but yeah so siberian pulverizes most of skitter's swarms with thrown trucks and uh, Trickster starts teleporting in grenades uh, to Siberian's location to add to the distraction. And then uh, Skitter eventually finds some men in the area and attacks them with bugs. But Siberian doesn't react to this, so she figures that none of those guys are the Siberian uh, projector. You think of these poor guys that are just hanging out in their house. And suddenly, <laughs> oh my god, what is happening? <laughs> Yeah, I wonder why people don't like Skitter. <laughs> uh, Gru generates a, a ton of darkness, using it to try to connect with b- the Siberian body, basically just feeling it, feeling around with it. And Skitter's using her bugs to steer Amy through this darkness. And then uh, eventually Siberian uses her arm to casually cut a building down and topple it on top of Amy, um, and then starts chasing uh, our villain group, um, and it occurs to Skitter that the creator is probably in a vehicle in order to sort of follow around this really fast-moving 
projection. Yeah, and I, I don't I don't really know how much else like what what else to say about this chapter. There's a lot of cool action in here. We get our first moment of prey, um, the the arc title where Siberian hunts Amy while the Undersiders are hunting Siberian. Um, we see Taylor's communication with her bugs has gone to new levels again. Like she's doing the finger pointing thing. Um, she's drawing like diagrams and pictograms on walls, mm-hmm. um, moving pictograms to get people to act. Um, it, it's just doing a lot of really cool stuff. And again, it's like, like Wildbo, the stuff he comes up with, with this power, like it, it's almost limitless. Like if you would ask me what you can do with a bug controlling power, like 14 arcs ago, I would have not said anything like this. Um, and it, it keeps the action scenes interesting and they flow well because you're constantly discovering how Taylor does new things. It's really cool. Totally. Yeah. And, and there's, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was just, just going to say that's, that, that, is a, that is a really fun element of the story that just is consistently fun arc after arc because it, there's always something new. Yeah, there's a real threat of action getting stale, especially in a story this long when you have one person as the point of view and you're constantly seeing them with the same power, but it, it just doesn't happen here because she's always using it differently. Right, and it's not like she has laser blasts, and her laser blasts are getting stronger arc after arc. It's always a new and creative thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is one thing I wanted to touch on this chapter. It's not. It's kind of tangentially related. Um, we've seen already in chapter fourteen one, and and here again, where Taylor mentions that she doesn't know uh, what she's going to do with Gru. That like just asking him if he's okay or asking him questions about something would remind him of his trauma. Um, this this is like a very it's a very common human sentiment to do to someone with trauma like if someone loses a parent or loses their spouse or or something really bad happens to them it's like i don't want to bring that thing up because it'll remind them that it happened and the more i learn about people the more i see that this is actually a really ridiculous thing to think um because like to assume that a person who just lost a parent or lost a spouse or went through a terrible breakup or something like isn't already consciously aware of that thing at all times is kind of ridiculous. Like, oh, yeah, you brought it up. So you're going to remind me that my wife died or something like that's not that's not going to happen. So mm-hmm. like it's just this very it, 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 I like this moment a lot because it's very real. It's how people handle people with trauma and it's really wrong headed. And I'm not blaming Taylor for it because everyone does it like I've done it. Um, uh, like, but it's just, it's just this, this crazy thing. Like the person with trauma needs you to talk to them and like to reach out to them. They want you to do it. Um, and they can't articulate that, but you're not going to remind them that they just went through a trauma. Trust me when I say they're thinking of this all the time on some level. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you pointed this out because this is something that I've only like understood recently as a, as a grown up. um, um, I was, it's interesting, even the examples you're pointing out, cause, cause I was, was listening to this podcast, uh, and, and on the podcast was this woman who had recently lost her husband and she said literally exactly what you're saying that like, people don't want to talk about it and they, they think they're doing you a favor by not reminding you. And it's like every moment she's conscious of this loss and would really just love some, some like acknowledgement of it. But but everyone wants to be like, oh, well, she seems fine right now. I wouldn't want to remind her of of this, exactly what you're saying. So, yeah, yeah. Um, we're definitely not holding it against Taylor in any specific no, 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 no. Taylor sense. It's, it's just a very believable um, reaction to someone who's gone through trauma. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the only thing I wanted to, to, to bring attention to on it. Yeah, it's not Taylor's fault. It's just very interesting. And I see this over and over again in, in real life, um, how people handle trauma like this. And it's wrongheaded. Don't do it. Mm-hmm. Talk to yeah. the person. They want you to talk to them. <laughs> Anytime yeah, I've gone through something really bad, I've wanted people to talk to me about it. And, and people don't because it's it's awkward and it's hard. Mm. Yeah. So that's our PSA. Yeah. <laughs> the more you know. Yeah, so uh, Tattletail tries to talk to Siberian and tells her for some reason that they're wasting her time on purpose um, so that the other fork of the team can go after the other Slaughterhouse-Nine, and then Siberian just promptly just disappears. Yeah, I thought about this for a while, um, because my gut reaction would, why would Siberian care? They can take care of themselves. And then I remembered this whole Bonesaw connection and the motherly love towards her, which is kind of weird now that we know she's actually a dude um but siberian's reaction still uh makes sense here but I, like what were the undersiders trying to do here <laughs> um because while those structures the the other attack as as kind of a reveal of sorts um we didn't know what the plan for their team was we we just kind of offhandedly noticed that the entire team wasn't here um it's like they're just fighting them again with less people uh, what was their plan to take down Crawler? Like, what was their plan to avoid Jack just murdering them all? Like, it's, I, it, it never really reveals itself to me. Uh, and maybe I'm just reading too much into it. Maybe it just literally distract while we kill Siberian and then pull out. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think various aspects of things didn't go the way they intended, maybe. Like, um, for one thing, Jack and Bonesaw aren't showing their faces at the other location. And those are really the only two... Uh, of of the nine that are like vulnerable to the sorts of attacks that the that, that the combined travelers undersiders t- can can put out. Right. Um, so so yeah, I mean, I guess they succeeded in saving Panacea here, so that was a that was a success. Um, yeah, sure. absolutely. I just I, I, yeah. It just I just I just don't like. I know t- <laughs> Tattletail's plan there was to that Siberian was probably going to just run back or mm-hmm. something. I, I don't know. I, I, I yeah, she, she fucked up big. <laughs> I don't, yeah. I don't. And it's, I, it's hard to, it's hard to see what the line of thought was. Yeah. She may have also been trying to, I mean, and, and I don't know if she was trying to do this or not, but, but they do basically as a consequence of this find where Siberian's real body is because, because the, because Taylor finds the van driving haphazardly through the streets or, or the yeah, truck or whatever that's it is true. so so yeah it's it's again it's hard to know what was like part of the plan and what was kind of an opportunity that that, that arose um but uh yeah i don't know maybe maybe as we go through this we'll 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 piece some things together sure so 13 uh, sorry 14.3 opens up and trickster is pissed at tattletail um because he feels that she's put ballistic's life in danger because ballistic is with the other group yeah, and I think this is, we touched on this just a second ago, but we're so used to seeing Tattletail's power help her and help everyone in just about every situation that we kind of forget sometimes that it has limitations and she's just making like really super educated guesses. And she's mm-hmm. right a lot, but but she can still be really wrong. And we see her be wrong at like one of the worst possible times. And now everyone's in danger. And yeah, I think I that's think... a good reminder. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting how tattletale reacts to trickster here because she actually seems like to remain wary of him throughout the rest of this section like she, she, 
a lot of the time we like see her shrug off people being mad at her. This is not one of those times. And I think it's interesting. I, I'm not exactly sure why, but but she like consistently kind of avoids him and and looks at him askance for the rest of the chapter. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. So Tattletale tries to engage Amy in conversation, um, but Amy's really freaked out uh, because someone's inviting her fingers off and also hates the hell out of Lisa specifically. Um, so Lisa gives up and Taylor takes a stab at it. Uh, she starts doing first aid on Amy while talking to her. And Amy is is kind of uncorking about how everything bad in her life started snowballing to hell right after the bank robbery. And Matt, uh, what does Taylor think in response to that information? Me too. Yeah, yeah, she, 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 that's immediate, and she doesn't, she doesn't say it out loud, but she admits that that's where things started to go bad for her too. And this entire conversation is so great, and it really cements to me a lot about uh, how Amy is supposed to reflect some of the conflict going on in Taylor. And I'm going to remind everyone of this like 20 times throughout the arc, because I think it's very important. Um, but we do see how alike Taylor and Amy are in this conversation and how they process trauma, how they deal with their own insecurities and how they rationalize and, and compartmentalize as they're going through stuff. Um, lash out when they perceive someone as bullies or bad guys in Amy's case, um, and, and how they kind of sometimes blame other people for their issues. And I, and I want us to pay really close attention to this as we go, and I'm going to make sure we do, um, because it's really important how what happens to Amy reflects back on Taylor's struggle. Yeah, just to draw out a specific example of what you're talking about, she's giving Taylor a hard time for, for being friends with, with Lisa because she just hates Lisa so much, and she says... And you can be friends with her and you still think of yourself as a good person. And Taylor says, I, I don't know that I think of myself that way. I've probably done more damage than good by trying to help others. And then thinks, Dinah, the people in my territory, now Brian, and then Amy. But your intentions were good then. You were trying to help. And Taylor thinks, uh, Taylor says, yeah. So, I mean, in context of everything we've been talking about so far, this is important. <laughs> It's, it's so important. And we've talked over and over again about this idea that the road to hell is paid with good intentions, um, that doing bad stuff for the right reasons, quote unquote, still results in a lot of bad stuff. And, and Worm is pushing that envelope and, and testing what its characters and, and by extension us are willing to put up with for the greater good. And we see here when confronted with Amy, um, a person that Taylor admittedly, she even says this a bit, bit later, reminds herself of, we see kind of a sort of self-awareness that is uh, unusual for Taylor, um, that she's done more bad things than good in her efforts to help people. And uh, this, is, this is Taylor realizing that sometimes her actions have been questionable. Um, and, and this is Taylor confirming one of the central themes of the story. Um, and this is, this is where I am absolutely convinced and my, my being hard on Taylor is <laughs> justified and correct for what the story is doing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's Taylor, Taylor is being hard on herself here maybe. And, and but, but she's, she's not wrong to, to do so. She's being self, she, she's, she's examining herself in a very healthy way. Yeah. Um, and I, and, yeah. And I want to make it clear that Taylor has done a lot of good things. I'm not saying that she hasn't. She's done a lot of really heroic things. We saw very heroic chapters from her just a few weeks ago. Um, but yeah, th there's still an undercurrent of justifying behavior in order to achieve these goals. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, and uh, to Amy, who again, 
very similar to Taylor. Let's keep beating that drum so we don't forget it. <laughs> um, it. It's not the end result that matters to Amy. It's the intentions. So that hearing that Taylor meant well is, is enough to get Amy on board. And she makes this decision because Taylor is able to make cho- these kind of choices. So she trusts that she can help her through her own difficult decision. And uh, uh, the end result of that, um, well, we'll see, won't we? Um. <laughs> yeah. So, as you said, she does convince Panacea to help them um, first by helping to boost the duration of the transformation of the dogs that they're riding so that they can continue to chase Siberian on the dogs. Um, But Amy still refuses to go with them. So Skitter tells her that she's going to send a mass of bugs to her and and tells her to just get creative with them. Um, And Amy's consistently like, I don't know what you mean. And, And Skitter has to be like, just figure something out. Uh, which I think highlights again that that Amy does not um, kind of own her power the same way Taylor does. Yeah, I don't think I've ever been more excited than this moment <laughs> when I'm curious how exactly Amy is going to get creative with some bugs. Yeah. Um, obviously, the the end result is the most amazing thing ever, but I was like mm-hmm. on the edge of my seat here. Yeah. So that, another moment, I mean, I think this is a really important conversation, so I'm pulling yeah, out more is. than usual of it. Um, but but uh, Amy says, you're a villain, you know, you're asking me to betray the family I grew up with if I'm helping you. I stared at her. We were so similar in such different ways, but I couldn't even begin to comprehend her train of thought. Why were the people who clung so fiercely to the notions of right and wrong the very same individuals who had the worst grasp of what they meant? Maybe I wasn't one to talk. Oh, man. (laughs) So before we jump into all the narrative implications of this, I wanted to touch on that phrase. We were so similar in such different ways because I love it. It's such beautiful writing. Um, Like I go back and forth on whether I like Wildbo's narration or his dialogue more. And at times I really love the dialogue and at times I really love the narration. And and that's where I am right now. Um, This this is so simple efficient in like in like one sentence you understand taylor you kind of understand amy you understand how their relationship is similar but also different um and it's just it's just oh, it's perfect i love it so much yeah yeah and 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 she has her own she has her own driving motives um that she's essentially trying to justify which is something that's like taylor um and and she has her own very narrow um sort of sense of right and wrong that she's trying to act according to um but her sense of right and wrong is apparently like completely inscrutable to taylor just like i'm sure taylor's sense of right and wrong is consistently frustrating and inscrutable to her teammates so that's that's another similarity i think that's being drawn out here right because it constantly shifts like Mm -hmm. taylor's right and wrong shifts depending on what the situation calls for um Mm -hmm. and like she seems on some level at least at least aware of that um i don't know if she's aware enough to change her actions because of it but i do i do like that this awareness comes about whenever she is talking to other people i i think that's a good touch that that it's interacting with other people that allows um these compartments that she creates to kind of come down a little bit and i think that's important to taylor and and how much she needs human connection and and the further away from people she is like the worse she gets um yeah and every time she has one of these conversations with someone, it, it I, I feel like it prompts a little bit of growth and self-realization, but I don't ever think it prompts an unrealistic amount of growth and self-realization because really in, in, in my own life, like 
it's not like I have, you know, a sequence of highly important conversations which completely transform me as a character and progress me through my arc. That's not exactly <laughs> how things work. So, um, so I, I think it's I think it's good that she's sort of being given a bunch of lenses with which to see herself, which is other people, and sometimes it so sometimes it pushes her along, sometimes it kind of doesn't, and that's realistic. Yep, I absolutely agree. Yeah. Um, at this point, Tattletail can't help but jump in because she knows what Panacea did to Victoria. Um, and, and Panacea is afraid that she's a monster. And that's, that's kind of what's happening here. This is kind of the struggle she's in right now. Um, and, and Tattletail says, she's saying, you're not a monster. Not yet. You shouldn't hate yourself for what you did in a moment of desperation. Hate yourself for what you do after. Hate yourself for your cowardice, your, your refusal to step up and help at this moment right now. Your refusal to participate in this world that you never even try to understand. That's a conscious call you're making, and you know it's the wrong one. Yeah, I really love this sentiment. Um, I love the idea that we all make mistakes and screw up, but it's it's what you do after those mistakes that really defines who you are. And, and, and again, we're going to connect this back to Taylor. Um, we do see moments where Taylor has realized that she's made mistakes and she's tried to correct it and step up. We've also seen moments where Taylor uh, doubled down on that mistake in an effort to for the greater good, um, taking a mistake and making it worse. Um, Amy is going to choose to help out here. She's going to choose to try to be better, better. But then she's also going to make another choice in in a few chapters that, uh, well, we'll get there. Yeah. So Telltale's prompting is enough to get Amy to ride along. And as they're riding, Amy makes some relay bugs, which are basically modifications of, I think, maybe dragonflies, uh, which serve to boost Skitter's range. Yeah, my brain uh, went crazy with the possibility of these two like being partners and, and doing all this crazy stuff. Um, sadly, we'll, we'll never get to see that world. And I think it, it probably makes sense from a, a story perspective that we couldn't see that because that seems just so powerful. <laughs> like mm-hmm. the ability to create new bugs for her to control seems like crazy powerful. So um, but this is the relay bugs are really cool. I like them a lot. Yeah, and, and obviously we see Taylor put them to good use pretty quickly because uh, it allows her to find uh, the Siberian projector with her bugs. Uh, he's driving wildly downtown um, in a small, like, moving van type thing. Um, and she basically tries to kill him as soon as she finds him. Uh, Siberian appears on top of the van and uses her power to basically extend her invulnerability to it to protect it. And Skitter, while they're chasing, is pelting the truck with grenades, which doesn't really do anything other than forces Siberian to stay with the truck, because if she leaves it, then it'll get blown up. Yeah, I really like that you brought out the where she basically like decides that she's going to have to kill the guy like almost immediately. Mm-hmm. And I, I like I, I think this is important because this is kind of what the nine do, because mm-hmm. like a few arcs ago, she was like, could I would I be able to kill Jack? Like, could I do this? Um, and she decided that she couldn't. But the nine have kind of taken that from her. And now she's at this level of desperation where she seems completely willing to, to kill now. And I think we'll see this again before this section is is through. Um, but I think that's a very important change. And, and, and that, again, the nine make you <laughs> like them by putting mm-hmm. you in these situations. Yeah. And and changes the scope of what you're willing to accept i think yeah so this is just uh, a really awesome intense chase scene with everyone using their powers to try to hamper the driver while chasing and avoiding the obstacles created by their own powers 
Yeah, uh, I called this chase sequence one of the most exciting action sequences of the book so far for me. Um, It's like the stakes are very clearly defined. You have a tense time limit. Um, We have all of our characters trying to collectively use their powers to try to defeat this invincible monster. I think this is really, for me, second only to the Leviathan fight. Um, I really, really enjoyed this. Yeah, yeah. So they they basically end this particular aspect of the chase when Sundancer uses her little sun to melt the entire road ahead of the truck and the truck kind of disappears into the giant melted hole that was created. And at this point, the hero team shows up in their identical white bodysuits. Yeah, this was really funny to me because like they're wearing the identical suits and gas masks. And we heard in the Pago chapter, it's because so the, the Slaughterhouse Nine can't tell them um, can't tell the local heroes from the heroes out of town, thus breaking the rules uh, that the Slaughterhouse Nine set. But like Legend is shooting lasers out of his hands, and there's a giant fucking bear just hanging out. So like it's very obvious that these people aren't from Brockton Bay. <laughs> like I think it's really funny. Uh, I mean, to be fair, they weren't showing up at the fight expecting the nine. They just saw the big sun and came over. But it's just so funny to me that that like it's very obvious that people from outside Brock to Bay are engaging in this fight. Yeah. I mean to, to speak of plans that are that are a little bit overly risky, it, it's kind of obvious that like it, unless the heroes were able to kill all of the nine in one fell swoop, they were going to have you know their cover blown and they would get the reprisal. Um, so, I mean, and and of course they they don't succeed in killing all the nine in one fell swoop. So yeah, it's um, basically putting all your eggs in the, we're going to kill, um, this, uh, we're going to kill everyone with this bomb basket and with no, with no indication of the bomb would even work on some of them. Yeah. Which is really arrogant because how many different groups of superheroes have tried to take out the nine over the years and, and not succeeded? I mean, we, we don't know, but we assume it's high. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the fact that, that Jack was one of the founding members, right? Or, or one of the early members, at least. Yeah, he's still alive. So. So, so, yeah, I mean, it's it, it, the arrogance is astounding. You're absolutely right. And we'll we'll get on that more when we get to the actual bomb dropping. But yeah, um, crazy, crazy risk taking. Yeah. So as they arrive, Skitter signals them with her bugs, with with letters saying it, Siberian and her creator are, are down there, basically. Um, and Siberian emerges holding the truck overhead. Um, Legend rains hellfire on her, and Cash tries to imprison her in his dimensional pocket, but the prison just kind of shatters without working on her. And then Siberian races away and is chased by Legend. But Battery stays behind, the person who's supposed to uh, ensure that Siberian escapes from this whole thing. So it's very, mm-hmm. very interesting. Very, very interesting. So here we have Chariot, our mole. Glory Girl and Battery approach our villains. Um, and Amy is not happy to be facing Glory Girl. She did not expect this. Um, Chariot hands them a phone with a call from Pigo. Yeah, and this is the first time we see Glory Girl after what Amy did to her. And it's really shocking. It's it like circles under her eyes, like intense rage on her face. Like Taylor says, she almost doesn't even recognize her. Um, the impact of what Amy did is here and and Amy and us must be forced to face it. And once again, let's remember that Taylor and Amy are very similar. So let's just I'm just going to keep beating that drum. (laughs) Please do. So moving to 14.4, Tattletail lets the heroes know that she has no need of the phone that Jared is offering because she's already cracked their comm channel. 
Um, and the strategic point of letting them know this is to let Pigo know that she's aware of the misinformation that she's been fed over time recently. Um, though I don't know exactly what the strategic point of letting the enemy know that you're aware of their misinformation would be. I guess if like you know they know, and then they know that you know that they know you know, um, then everyone's just wasting time. But I, I think that makes sense. <laughs> um, yeah. But like Lisa can also get the new codes really easily if they change. Mm-hmm. So like, I think she's. She, my guess here is that by like Lisa's power works on getting new information. So by like putting other information out there, she's maybe hoping that it leads to a train of thought that infers some new information for her. Um, that's my guess. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. I guess what I was driving at is like, is this a clever chess move by Lisa or is, can she just not help herself in terms of like screwing with people hmm. and, and lording, lording things over people? Maybe a little of both. Yeah, maybe a little of both. That's a good point. Pro- probably so. Yeah, so I, I love the repartee between these two characters, Pigot and Tattletale. Um, so, so here, Tattletale tells her about Siberian's nature and infers that Pigot has something planned. Yeah, there's a lot of like sarcastic doublespeak going on between these two characters. Um, but what really strikes me is just how fucking smarmy Pigot comes off. Like mm-hmm. a week ago, we were we we were in her head in a chapter and I still didn't really like her, but I did kind of understand her. And, and now we're in someone else's head and her, like she's just so cocksure and like confident. And it just like, it drives me insane. And I think again, mm-hmm. that goes to how much point of view affects things. Yeah. Um, and that like, I just, I just really hate her in this moment. Yeah. I, I love when, when Pico is like, do you think I'm stupid? Tattletale and Tattletale says stupid. No genius no <laughs> sick burn title too yeah. well and i like that pigo laughs at this because she's like oh you got me you know and, and <laughs> that, that actually kind of makes me like pigo it makes me see her as, as human because it's it's yeah it's, it's yeah. relatable she's playing um, in a world of gods and it's just a man so it's like mm-hmm. it's like being free to admit your your um your faults is is human mm-hmm. yeah so Pigo admits her plan to firebomb the Nine while actually still withholding the rest of the plan. So she's sort of lying by omission here. Yeah. Um, and I love I love this moment where, like, she tells him that. is like, well, our people are fighting them there. And, and Pigo is like, Legend did warn them that they shouldn't. He was told, I quote, suck shit. And Taylor's like, that would be bitch. Or maybe imp. Probably bitch. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I love that moment. It's so great. Yeah, it's hilarious. Yeah, it, it's it's funny how... I'm not even I don't think I even realized until we're talking about it just now how comedic that whole exchange was yeah yeah so Pigot has cut off communications to the area that's going to be bombed so the team will have to go into the danger zone to rescue their teammates Tattletale probably rightly guesses that Pigot won't lose any sleep if undersiders die in this event yeah and then Pigot says how sad that you see monsters where none exist and this is like uh, this bitch, like, I got so mad at this. Like, you can imagine how she says it, too. Uh-huh. Uh, but I think the important thematic part of all this is that you don't have to be a monster to do a monstrous thing. And I think, like, from Pagot's perspective, her goal here is noble. Uh, defeat the Nine, possibly get rid of other bad guys in the area. At the same time, these, these bad guys are threatening the people of her city's safety. So she's just doing her job. But also... What she's doing is wrong. It's it's risky. It's like it's crazy. And and on some level, I think she knows it, but 
she, like Taylor, is is justifying it. Just like you justify putting a bullet to the head of a captured prisoner. Just like you justify leaving someone to die. Uh, most people who do bad things like this don't see themselves as bad people. And the Nine, of course, are, are an exception to all this. And it's their, like, their just very existence that causes this dramatic shift in the status quo. And and it is the existence of a monster that forces monstrous actions upon others. And I think this really, this really like, nails the theme of what the Slaughterhouse-Nine are. Because um, mm-hmm. the true horror of the Slaughterhouse-Nine are not the things that they do, but rather the things that they force us to do to defeat them. Mm-hmm. And, and dropping bombs on your own city... It's one of those things. Yeah. And, and I just wanted to, to mention the obvious parallel to, to what Arms Master did uh, when fighting Leviathan. It's right. his, in his own justification, he's not like, yeah, my, my plan was to kill these villains. He's, he's more like, my plan was to get Leviathan in a compromised position. And if a few villains had to be the ones who were sacrificed in the course of doing that, then I was going to pick villains over heroes. Um, and, and that's essentially almost exactly the same thing Pigo is doing here yep. and justifying it in, in similar, but, but different terms. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the call ends and they head out again. Uh, Amy asks to be dropped off again because she didn't sign on for, uh, riding into a firebomb zone. Skidder asks her to make something specifying that they need firepower and mobility. Uh, and then she feeds Amy a large volume of, of bugs this time. Uh, so she's she's using the relay bugs to extend her range forward to the other group so she can see, see what they're doing. Let it be known that as soon as I saw she asked for mobility, my brain immediately went to a giant flying bug that Taylor could ride around on. And I've never been more excited for what's about to happen. <laughs> yep. So she's able to watch the battle with Crawler ahead of them while they're while they're riding. It's cool to finally see Ballistic go all out here. Um, he's basically just like shooting cars and just giant you know things at at crawler at supersonic speed uh genesis is flying around and dropping stuff on him regent is piloting shatterbird to just hamper him at every turn with a rain of glass um and she communicates with regent by spelling out evacuate and basically giving him an alphabet to pick letters from to reply which i loved um and he says they can't run because they're keeping crawler pinned yeah this is so amazing she just comes up with the shit on the fly like I'll just make an alphabet board so you can talk to me. And it's like, again, like the, the ingenuity with some of this stuff is incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The so skitter also communicates uh, the locations and rough distances of the nine to the uh, reassembled hero task force. And they head off to go after Bo- uh, Jack and Bonesaw. Uh, so finally, our villain team arrives at where Crawler is. And she starts using her million spiders to start weaving cords to ultimately hinder Crawler, and Gru blinds him with darkness, and Sundancer uses her son to topple a building on him. Yeah, and this is the most powerful uh, we've ever seen, Taylor. She's controlling millions of bugs, millions of individual instructions. She's doing it all with her brain. She doesn't get tired. It doesn't drain her. She just, like, we we haven't seen her limit. Like, we haven't seen it yet. It just, like, it keeps going up, and it's mm-hmm. it's incredible. And, it, and her plan kind of works. She manages to wrap Crawler up, which is cool. Yeah, yeah. So everyone tries to flee, um, but Crawler chases and ends up knocking Genesis out of the air, who, who's carrying Imp and Ballistic. Uh, so they fall, and they're kind of hurt. Uh, Skidder pulls a tailor and gives up her seat to Ballistic, 
uh, and then she continues running on foot, which is obviously not optimal and not really having a plan. Yeah, I love this. I love that she just yells Groove's name and he like knows immediately what she's going to do. And it's like, don't you fucking dare. Um, Taylor, like she can be so heroic at times. And that's what like maybe we just haven't done a good job of stressing like how much of a hero she can be and 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 why I point out when she's not living up to her potential, because this is this is the noble heroic sacrifice um, for other people for no other reason than um, she puts them first. Yeah, she she's very willing to sacrifice herself for other people. The problems arise when the option to sacrifice herself isn't available, but the option to sacrifice other things is available. Yep, absolutely. So, yeah. She senses the heroes um, being put in a dimensional pocket by Cash as they're fighting, uh, which basically signals her that things are about to go down. Amy finishes her creation which we don't really know what it is yet because Skitter can't really perceive what it is, but she brings it to herself and Scott, it's a giant flying beetle. Matt, I lost my shit. <laughs> I was going crazy. I know we're in the middle of this really tense battle and we have this big threat of two looming explosions over us, but Taylor is riding on a giant fucking flying beetle and it's the most amazing thing ever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so satisfying. It's so satisfying. Uh, so it ends up being that this 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 new bug is very hard for her to fly. It's not instinctive like her other bugs, where she can just sort of give it a, a vague command. Um, she has to micromanage its every movement, but she does figure it out. So soon she's in the air, um, laughing giddily to herself while buzzing her friends with a salute, which I have to imagine what they're thinking at this moment. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. It's going to be so incredible. Oh, this yeah. is awesome. Yeah. So 14.5, high above the city. Uh, she's flying she can't even sense any of the bugs below her anymore because they're out of her range Um, and she sees the bomber fly in and incinerate several blocks of Brockton Bay Uh, Tattletail calls and they decide that Jack and Bonesaw may have survived by going underground yeah so we see that the first bomb is completely ineffective um, at all Um, but we know there's a second bomb and this is Hitchcockian suspense creating right like knowing the bomb is under the table about to go off is way more suspenseful than just being surprised by it um and so now everything that happens over the next two chapters have this undercurrent of tension because we know that that we know that the second bomb's coming we know that they don't know that the second bomb's coming so you're like oh my god oh my god oh my god um it's really great yeah it's it's interesting here to to think about the plan here uh because like you pointed out the firebomb is is almost completely effective except maybe as a strategy to drive certain members of the nine into certain places where they're maybe more uh susceptible to the second bombing run i'm not yeah maybe i'm not really sure yeah it's it's such a risky plan too because there's like all their people are there and like Mm -hmm. like i mean they use we find out that they use clockbocker's power to basically freeze people in place to protect them but that power doesn't have a set end time right. <laughs> like like it doesn't like we never you never know when it's going to end it could be as short as 30 seconds what if the fire hadn't gone away matt like it's just like right it's so it, it's so risky yeah also i i i continually can't stop myself from thinking about the fact that while cash is time locked um cash can't perceive anything but Clockblocker can't freeze himself with his power. He can only freeze his costume. So he's basically sitting rigid <laughs> in a shell of his own costume as this firebomb explodes all around him. Presumably he can see out of his own mask as 
as this happens. And he's just <laughs> sort of watching, and then he's watching Crawler spit acid on him in a moment, just waiting for the invulnerability of his suit to wear off. Um, gotta, yeah. It's always fun to, to think in detail about what's actually happening in terms of powers, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great point. Yeah. So as she's flying around, she comes down and she sees Weld fighting Mannequin in the flamescape below. Uh, Mannequin is trying to pile cars on top of the clock-blocked heroes so that when they come out of stasis, they'll be crushed. Yeah, uh, I really want to point out how much I like Weld. <laughs> I really, really like him. He's insanely cool. And I think it's really interesting to watch how different his fight with Mannequin is than Taylor's. Um, because it's a completely different power set and it just kind of shows how adaptable mannequin is um, and how much of a threat he can adjust his situation to fight just about anyone and even even weld who's a person who he really can't hurt weld um, in any kind of serious sense but he can still hamper him enough to uh, threaten him and i think it's just really cool yeah yeah i like the little digression on on like the differences and similarities between their powers so yeah skitter flies to her friends and asks Amy for help with the beetle uh, in terms of uh, controlling it, which Amy largely refuses. And Ballistic hands her some grenades and Trickster gives her a gun. Yeah, I was at first kind of surprised by Amy's choice here. Um, it, it makes sense in retrospect, but I think you just... You, I started seeing her as like on Team Undersiders. So I was like, oh, wait, you're not going to help? Um, but she still does help out slightly, which I think is... is interesting but she's not fully ready to commit to to helping out this person who she still perceives as a bad guy yeah she's really vacillating on this and i think that's i think that's credible yeah uh so she flies back and she uses a grenade to blast a car off of cash um and she tries to support weld by tossing a grenade at mannequin but weld doesn't understand what she's trying to signal uh and so he almost gets blown up yeah, I laughed out loud when I read this. I think maybe it was just like the sustained tension over so much time that I just needed a release of some sort. But um, this was really uh, comedic for me, especially since like right before she drops the grenades, she says, I really shouldn't be using these things without any sort of training. And then she just uses them anyway. <laughs> and almost right. blows someone up. And then yeah. like there's the moment where she she drops the first one uh, to clear the cars off of the, the uh, clock-blocked heroes. And it's like man, it's lucky that they didn't come out of stasis right when the grenade went off. I was like, holy shit! Like, <laughs> yeah. Right. I love the acknowledgement of this because, like, if, if anyone were to just hand me a grenade and be like, yeah, just, uh, you know, just do that, I would be like, there's, like, a 50% chance that I'm going to be dead because <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, so Cash, uh, uh, so, so first uh, Crawler comes in and he's fighting Weld. Uh, Crawler's obviously a lot bigger and stronger than Weld, so he does some damage to Weld. And then he sprays his horrifying solvent that we're about to find out about all over the time-locked heroes. Uh, Cash comes back from time stoppage and is covered in this solvent, but keeps his composure and manages to pull the heroes out of his dimension. Uh, Skitter shoots Mannequin in the back successfully. I, I also love the moment where she's like, whoa, how did I do that? Yeah, yeah. It's hard. The handguns are hard to and fire. I don't know if this is widely understood, but yeah. it's hard. It's kind of the the Saving Pirate Ryan moment, too, where she shoots him and he falls over, and she's like, wow, I did it. And then he just gets <laughs> back up, and you're like, oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. So so Glory, Glory Girl takes on Crawler, which at first seems like it might be a good match, but then he sprays her with his solvent, and then he hits her. So her force field goes down, 
thus causing the solvent to go onto her skin, and then her flesh begins to melt off horrifyingly. Oh, this is this is tough to read. Um, first of all, I think it was surprising that Crawler just knew how Glory Girl's power worked. Um, yeah, I, I I had the same thought, and and then it occurred to me that he that that might have just been an accident. Like he he just might have been like, well, I'll just spray this person and hit them because that's a good thing to do. I mean, it, yeah, it may have been be a, a lucky accident on his part, but yeah, that, yeah, that's fair. Or it could be Cherish telling them stuff about people, but mm-hmm. it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Uh, the point is that this is really tough to see. And I think it's here where I realized what we had been setting up with Amy and the choice she's going to present, be presented with. And I was like, Oh no, Oh no, yeah. this is where we're going. Oh God. Uh huh. Yeah. So we move into 14.6. Uh, Vista is keeping Crawler pretty much in place by manipulating the street dimensions around him, and Flechette shoots him with her with her uh, flechettes, uh, which <laughs> which uh, damages him. But they're they're kind of too small to really do much. There's just lots of cool fighting in general. Yeah, this is another one of those parts where like it's tough to single out and talk in detail about all the fighting that's going on. Um, it's all cool. I like it all. Um, let's just move on. <laughs> yeah. So Weld throws girl, Glory Girl up to Taylor, and Taylor catches her in the air, um, seeing Dragon Genesis waiting in below as she flies away. Uh, and as she's flying back to Panacea, she names her beetle Atlas. Yeah, I love this so much. Um, it, it makes sense in in story because it's a Hercules beetle, so Her- Hercules, Atlas, it makes sense for her, but it works so thematically too. Um, Atlas is responsible for holding up the sky, you know, forever burdened with the task of keeping the sky from literally falling. Um, who who does that remind <laughs> you of? I don't know. I don't know what you're getting at there. <laughs> uh, so sh- she brings Glory Girl to the other Undersiders and tells Amy to heal her. Um, and of course, at this point, Victoria tries to refuse the healing, uh, even though she's literally dying, because that's the place that she's in right now. Yeah, it's hard for me not to, uh, to like, I, I don't blame her. I don't blame her for this. Like, I would not, after what she did to her, I would not want Panacea touching me at all, even if it meant maybe dying. Like, who knows what else she's going to do to you. Right. So here we have, um, as she's refusing, Amy shook her head, talking over her. She's always been emotional, passionate, unrestrained, and she's channeling all this new emotion into hate because it's the closest equivalent. New emotion, Regent asked. You mean you mind raped her? <laughs> um, which, so, so like, like we pointed out at the start of the chapter, we've been reminded of this aspect of Regent and his character and his history, I think specifically so that this punch lands where the contrast and the reflection of Regent being the one to point this out um, hits home and and hits us the right way and hits Amy the right way and uh, it, it's a it's a it's a well crafted moment um, yeah yeah and and again I'm always glad that you that you point out that the first chapter sets things up because obviously this was this was what was being set up there this is where that shoe falls yeah and on top of being the most ironic thing ever stated by a human being in the history of earth um it turns out it's also really important to what we're going to do with amy in this chapter uh we'll get that into that in a minute but it's very important to uh, contrasting amy and alec and and what their power does and and who what we're okay with and what we're not okay with Mm -hmm. yeah so telltale uses her power of lying and tells glow girl she's going to rinse her with water but then just pushes panacea at her um, so 
So Panacea uses her power to try to heal Victoria and sees that Crawler's spit is basically like a mixture between protease and acid and nanotechnology, and it's uh, it's really hard to deal with. Yeah, I'm curious your thoughts on the the, the decision of, of Tattletale here to, to ignore uh, Glory Girl's request and basically um, let Amy heal her. Um, now, now, I know it's going to go further than that in a minute, but I'm just talking about this, like, like, should you honor the wishes of someone, even if they seem seemingly irrational and will lead to their death? Like, what, what is, what is Tattletale's duty to Glory Girl here, like, or, or duty to saving a person? Like, I'm, I'm curious what you, your thought of that, on that is. I, I think here, Tattletale is, is actually legitimately trying to help Amy, first and foremost, um, because her priority is she's basically saying, and, and as she's about to say, you know, as she says right here, she's basically saying, heal, you know, save her life and then fix what you did to her head. And, and, and it's very clear that Telltale's like, just, just stabilize her and then fix what you did to her head. We need to, we need, you, you need to fix what you did to her head as soon as possible because this is the like monster slippery slope that you're going down, Amy Dallin. You, you need to, you need to rectify this mistake. Um, right now while while you have the opportunity and then like then we can move forward then victoria can move forward and she 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 can do what she's going to do but at least then her mind will be intact and your like ethics can be intact because you've you've made the right choice and you've righted the wrong that you that you committed um this is the only opportunity you're going to get though because she's incapacitated right now i mean this this is i'm i'm putting all this in in tattletale's mouth but it's it's she says pretty much just as much she says it's as much a priority as anything else i said it before if you don't do it now um and and amy of course shuts her down because she's doesn't want to hear that basically yeah um, yeah I, I think that's a good read on it i think you're absolutely right um she she has a duty to keep her alive and to undo what was done to her um, but after that, she will give Glory Girl back her agency and, and will allow her to make her own decisions. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I kind of dodged your question in terms of is it okay to ignore what Glory Girl is asking for here? Um, I mean, I think that comes down to personal opinion, maybe. I, I think that Glory Girl is like both m- mentally and physically compromised in this moment. So, it probably is somewhat appropriate to just go ahead with the healing and then, you know, bite the bullet afterward. Yeah, that's I, my think, opinion. I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah, so she continues to fix her while the undersiders banter about uh, the fact that Taylor had offhandedly mentioned that she thought about feeding people bugs in in a pinch. Yeah, and Alec continues to be like super judgy here <laughs> and <laughs> makes me want to beat him over the head with the black kettle. Um, th- this whole exchange is kind of weird to me, and I'm not sure I like it. Um, like Alec calls Taylor out on wanting to feed bugs to people. And like, it's not like she was going to force them down people's throats. It was just like, if we get desperate and run out of food, I can bring you bugs. I am I just reading this wrong? Am I missing something? Like this whole exchange is really weird to me. So, so my interpretation of this is that Taylor is actually just really sensitive and has no sense of humor. Um, <laughs> actually, that's very fair. Because I think Alec is just messing with her. Like he, he has no, he doesn't really care about the feeding bugs thing he's just like oh that's kind of weird it's kind of weird bug girl and he's just needling her and 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 instead of like rolling with it and 
and you know biting back humorously or or or, or whatever she she's like well it seems like a good idea i don't i don't know why and, and because we're in taylor's <laughs> head we we miss the fact that alec is just doing what he would do to anyone about anything which is just just ribbing them and giving them a hard time about it um i, I mean i think it's i think it's in 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 other scenarios and other wild love stories we have characters who who banter back and forth taylor never banters back and forth she always gets really sensitive when people give her a hard time yeah i think um, you're absolutely right here i think we i was reading this not from taylor's kind of unreliable narrative point of view but now that i look at it from that perspective it makes a lot more sense and i, and I like it more okay good i'm glad i was able to save that for you uh yeah so so at this point um Amy's Amy's basically saying like I I'm not gonna listen to you you're you're a bad guy and Tattletale says oh yeah Tattletale replied in a, in a dry tone I'm evil right maybe that's all the more reason to listen if I'm saying that something's fucked up and wrong yeah um hey hey Amy uh, this is Tattletale making a really good point maybe you should listen to her um and and hey this is the the 47th reminder that we've been continually comparing amy and taylor throughout this whole arc almost as if this is about to pay off in some kind of really important and meaningful way Just reminder yeah hmm, i don't know <laughs> yeah so instead of listening to telltale and everyone else um amy basically like hypnotizes glory girl with her power to make her docile and controllable so she won't fight amy as amy tries to finish the healing and here it is, Matt, and I'm about to talk for a really long time, and I apologize, but this is the conceit of this week's episode, so I, I feel like I have to. Um, this is the moment we've been building to this entire time. Um, we've said it over and over again. Taylor and Amy are, are so much alike in a lot of ways. They both make choices thinking they're doing things for their greater good. Uh, they, they both ignore those around them when they're offering them advice, ignoring the, the feelings of those they care about because they think they know better. Um, they're able to justify these monstrous actions as long as they're done to monsters or, or done to people they care about. And and we see Amy make a choice here. It's a, it's a horrible choice, a wrong choice. It doubles down on the bad thing that she did the first time. It crosses a line. She can't come back from it. And, and let's make no mistake. Let's 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 be very clear here. This is wrong what she's doing. I, I, I don't and I don't think I don't think there's really a lot of wiggle room for interpretation in that. I think it's very clear textually that what she's doing is wrong here. Um, and and she thinks that it's the right thing to do. She justifies it. And then she attacks the hypocrisy of the undersiders um, for calling her out on it being wrong. And Matt, she's she's kind of right on that front. Like, they are allowing Regent to freely use his power. Um, Taylor specifically calls her out and says, hey, ends justify the means doesn't work. And that's like Taylor's, like, her her job <laughs> that's like what she does um like so like these these people that she sees as hypocrites are calling her out for something and she uses that for justification of why it's okay and and that that doesn't really hold up because like just because a murderer says don't kill people um doesn't mean that it's okay to kill people because they're being a hypocrite and and amy amy can't see that and amy messes up here and again amy and taylor are so much alike and and this is this is what we're doing here. This is what Amy's story in this arc is doing. It's it's a word of warning for Taylor that if, if you keep playing fast and loose with your morality, if you keep justifying, if you keep compartmentalizing and rationalizing, eventually you're going to cross a line that you cannot walk back from. And 
and if I'm ever hard on Taylor, that's why. Because Taylor is better than this. I, I fully think that. I think Taylor is stronger than this. I think Taylor is a hero. Um, but that doesn't mean she couldn't make the same choice that Amy does. You know, what would Taylor be willing to do to save Dinah? What would she be willing to give up? And, and, and there's so many parallels here. And it's so important. It's, it's exactly what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's absolutely you know critical that that Taylor is being given this mirror essentially at this point in the story, um, and and it's a great it's a great dramatic element to force her to confront certain things, yeah. and and I don't know that she necessarily is confronting confronting them in the moment because she's doing things like justifying Regent's use of his power, which is something that she was highly uncomfortable with before. Um, right, she basically she, says it's okay if it's it's a monster. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and again, so she's putting uh, Shadowstalker in the same category as, as Shadowbird, which yeah. while Shadowstalker is truly a, a terrible person, I don't think she's on the same level as a member of the Slaughterhouse Nine. So, right. yeah, you're absolutely right that that my biggest concern here is that it is a mirror and we're seeing it as readers. But is Taylor and, and maybe she is on some level like Taylor has this ability to take stuff in and and toss it in that compartment and then ignore it until later um so hopefully it's in there somewhere and she'll she'll realize it down the road but that that is what we're doing with amy in this moment i just wanted to make sure everyone's really clear on that that Mm -hmm, she is a a a example of what could happen to taylor if she continues doing what she's doing right yeah there's almost always a, a time delay between something happening to Taylor or her making a choice and then her kind of having time to, to sleep on it and internalize it and, and uh, objectively view it outside of that situation. And that's, that's very normal and, and, and human. So, yeah. so hopefully, yeah, hopefully this sinks in on some level. But yeah. And in, in the course of the conversation, Taylor chimes in to say that this, this thing that Amy's doing is a predictable bit of self-deception that Taylor herself is very familiar with. Uh, but Amy rejects this. And at this point, the other undersiders, not including Taylor, because she wasn't she wasn't with them when they were talking about it, uh, tell her that they wanted to ask Panacea to join their team, actually. Uh, but she refuses fairly, fairly vehemently. Um, finally, um, <laughs> Amy tells her that Atlas is going to starve to death soon because she didn't give him a digestive system. And then she leaves with Glory Girl, basically using Glory Girl's flight to, 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 uh, to fly away. Uh, Gru... As they're leaving, borrows Amy's power and uses it to give Atlas a digestive system, um, which he doesn't really know what he's doing because it's not really his power. So it's a it's a human digestive system. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit of a, a Cronenbergian horror moment, isn't it, Matt? I mean, uh-huh. It's like really weird. On the bright side, though, it means Atlas will really like tacos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the perfectly nutritious food. <laughs> So at this point, uh, they they assess their options and they discuss strategy and they decide to go after Jack and Bonesaw. So we slide into 14.7, which is the last chapter we're going to do this week. Uh, they head to the location that they're discussing, which is uh, the probable hiding hiding spot of Jack and Bonesaw, uh, which is one of two different shelters, one of them being the Inbringer shelter where Sion confronted Leviathan. Um, and here, here we reflect on... Um, on something that I don't think Taylor has, I don't think we've necessarily seen before, but it's a very believable moment. Um, um, Lisa is asking Taylor why that location is associated with bad memories. Um, and, and Taylor says it's, it's because there was someone who she didn't like in, in the bunker. And she says, uh, a, a teacher, I think that when I left the undersiders, I guess I was thinking of 
considering becoming a hero or something. But with what happened at the shelter, I almost feel like it was a turning point. It was the first time I did anything that someone else could point to and call heroic. And somehow I can't find it in myself to be proud about it. And it's like the dream of being a hero that I always had just kind of faded away in the face of reality. Uh, yeah. It's, <laughs> Taylor. It's, 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 it's just sad here, I think, because, yeah, yeah. you know, she, she did do something really heroic and, and she never, as, as usual, actually, she didn't really let herself feel good about it. Um, and, and we're learning, I think for the first time, basically that she kind of internalized the fact that she didn't feel good about being heroic and, and in some sense, use it to justify, um, sliding in the opposite direction. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then look, hey, in this scene, Taylor is volunteering to go on a dangerous solo mission to scout out one of the locations while the undersiders check out the other. And Gru says no, but Taylor does anyway. That's that's weird. Yeah, almost as if Taylor has like sort of a, a hero complex, hmm. <laughs> like she's always striving for that moment she can feel proud of, even though the, the tragic part about Taylor is her trauma, her repressed trauma and this emotional state of hers makes it almost impossible for her to, to give herself any credit for anything. Um, man, it's almost as if she's like some sort of, I don't know, Titan who's like got the, got the entire world on her shoulders or something. Hey, on a unrelated note, is an Atlas a cool name for her bug? It is. Yeah, yeah it is. I just like the sound of it. Yeah. No yeah. other reason. No, no, no thematic reason at all. No. So she doesn't find Jack and Bonesaw, but she does find Siberian and Legend dueling. Uh, Legend is obviously just trying to keep Siberian pinned in this general area and obviously not gonna able not gonna be able to do any damage to her um and she and Siberian's still carrying the truck around but taylor realizes uh, after searching it that the creator is not in the truck yeah and then she like skywrites to legend to let him know and yeah. this made me laugh so much because now i'm i was thinking of like people hiring taylor to skywrite for them like can you imagine <laughs> will you marry me in bugs in the sky? Yeah. Giant apocalyptic swarm of bugs. Uh, my, my brain is fun. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> so she gets Legend to blast open the shelter nearby and find Bonesaw, Jack, and Siberian's creator within. She orders her bugs to basically eat them alive, unhesitatingly, while cocooning their arms and hands in silk. Uh, but nonetheless, Bonesaw manages to get her bug-killing smoke out. Um, which which starts killing the bugs. Taylor tries to ignite the smoke, but finds that it is not flammable. Yeah, and again, to to wrap up what we were talking about with her lack of hesitation with killing Siberian's creator uh, or while he was in the truck, we're seeing her go all out here. She she's no longer caring about holding back or keeping people in, uh, alive, and the nine have pushed her to that that point of desperation. Um, from uh, can I execute Jack? I don't know. The actually like, saying it's easy to actually doing it's a lot harder. And now she's just like, fucking kill these people now. I have to. Yeah. Um, and it's just like it's and I, I like I'm not like when we point out this stuff, people tend to say like, well, they're monsters like we have to do that. And I, I'm not saying that that's wrong, but it's I'm just pointing out the fact that look where she's gone. Like, look, look at point A and point B now and look at that change. And that's important. Yeah. That I, I was going to say exactly that. It's not, it's not that this is it's not that this is a bad thing for her to be doing. It's it's that now she has crossed this line, and if we know one thing about Taylor, it's that once she crosses a line, that's her new normal. Yep. Yep. So Legend attacks uh, the nine that are huddled in the shelter, um, and then retreats as an, as yet another bomber arrives. 
This one drops Makara's bombs on the area, and three blocks of Rockton Bay are turned into a realm of otherworldly chaos. Yeah, yeah. So monsters where there are none, right, Pigo? Because um, mm-hmm. th- there's no doubt in my mind that civilians were killed in this. I mean, obviously we know uh, the ones in the vault were, I mean, and granted they were horrible mutations by Bonesaw, but they were still human beings. But they said they evacuated the area, but evacuations aren't perfect. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure people died in this. And they yeah. seem completely indifferent to that fact, because um, ends justify the means, right? Right. I mean, even if it was just the hostages in the vault, um, it's it, it is very interesting how how Legend is able to be like, yes, well, they were they were horribly disfigured. I, I don't even think they would have thanked me, the, you know, thanked us if we had saved them. And it's like, uh huh, yeah, I'm sure they wouldn't have <laughs> thanked you if you'd saved their lives. Yeah, you get to make that call for them. Yeah, that's interesting. Right. Okay, that's that's odd coming from you, legend. Huh, <laughs> interesting. So yeah, uh, yeah. So um, she talks to legend up in the sky. Uh, he tells her that mannequin was indeed pinned in place and uh, was dead. Is dead, and that crawler actually stayed on purpose because. Pigo had well just tell him outright that this bombing run was coming in. So Crawler stayed in place to intentionally be hit by bombs and is now dead, which is which is just great. I, I wanted to to point out here before I move on from this that I was actually really surprised that Mannequin dies off screen like this. Um and is basically just, you know, chalked up to if anyone clock blocker. Um, because I thought that we were going to get another showdown between him and Taylor, and Taylor was going to, um, you know, defeat him soundly this time, and we didn't get that. And, and I don't feel like that was—I don't feel robbed at all, actually. I, in fact, I feel like, oh, yeah, I mean, this this story plays very well with tropes, and one of the ways that you play well with tropes is that you don't just give people what they expected, yeah, you subvert it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah and and I, I was agreeing with that. And when I originally made my prediction about Armsmaster coming back into the fray at the end, I thought he was going to assist Taylor in taking down Mannequin, which would be a cathartic moment for him. Um, but yeah, that didn't happen. So that the, that is a good point. It's interesting. And, and they definitely subverted my expectations here. So um, I, I think that this is really brilliant because I think making the bomb work on some level um, kind of forces you to look at it and like if it had been completely ineffective like it just hadn't worked at all it'd be much easier to say this was wrong but like it killed mannequin and crawler crawler like one of the most powerful indestructible people on the team so like it forces us to deal with the ends justify the means like it forces us to look at that and and say well did it like did did was this justified and the problem is of course that if you justify bad actions for good reasons every time you do it you move that line and the more you stretch your morals like the bigger the consequence and i think that's what we're going to see here is that that they did something that was risky that maybe didn't work because they were desperate and they said well this is justified if it works and now they have to live in the consequences yeah much like their plan uh, to capture Shatterbird resulted in losing Gru. This plan succeeded in taking out two more of the nine, but uh, is now going to get uh, <laughs> a high level of blowback. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so they see uh, below. They see Jack and Bonesaw and Siberian and her creator, and they're kind of huddled together. Um, the man is injured, 
the, the projector and Siberian is flickering violently. And I, I don't think we mentioned this on air, but we had we had learned that Siberian can't actually extend her invulnerability to her projector, um, although she can extend it to like a car that he's sitting in, obviously. And then we have this yeah. moment where uh, where Legend is looking down and kind of like sighs and says, my eyes are better than most, a minor benefit of my powers. The backs of his hands, perhaps you can make out the tattoos, a cauldron on, on the left hand and a swan on the right. So please remind me if I'm supposed to recognize the swan at this point. I, I don't think I am, but I'm bad at reading things. Um, uh, I don't think you are. Okay, yeah, because the cauldron is obviously the cauldron, but um, okay. So I'm, I'm glad I'm, <laughs> I didn't miss something there. Yeah. Yeah, so as the hero and villain teams converge on the area, uh, Legend reminds us that this is the worst-case scenario because Bonesaw is going to deliver her bioweapon punishment now. Oh, look, and there's the consequence. We we took a risky action. It was the wrong thing to do. Um, it was it was perfect example of ends justify the means, and then now we have to suffer the consequence of that. And I'm sure they will be proportionately worse than anything we could have imagined. Um, I can't even with how fucked up Bonesaw is. I can't even imagine what this is going to be. But um, there we are. So that's that's yeah. what happens. We've got two really good examples for what what can happen when you keep playing fast and loose with your morals um, in this one uh -huh. arc. Almost yeah. as if that's one of the themes of the story. Yeah, yeah, and 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 deeply rooted in the conflict and struggle of the characters. Perhaps I don't know. Yeah, yeah, just, exactly. Just thinking out loud well, here. Well put. Yeah. So, Scott, that I think that was a good place for us to to break this arc. Um yeah. let's uh let, let's let's move on into your speculations. All right. Um so first of all, we have two old ones that were confirmed. Like I said, um the the source of the powers being a parasite that Taylor will willing that will learn to control. I'm willing to call that wrong at this point. Um even if something happens that's closer to that, it was very clearly what 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 the passenger quote unquote is is not what I was thinking of when I said this, so I'm going to allow myself to be wrong. Um, it doesn't happen very often, but you know. <laughs> um, and then uh, Taylor will fly at some point. That was correct because now she has a flying beetle named Atlas that's gonna live forever. I hope because it's amazing. Um, I, I think it's really cool, and I'm I'm glad I was right with that. I don't think when I first said Taylor will fly, that's not quite what I imagined. Um, I was thinking maybe she'll like make a suit out of bugs <laughs> that lift her or something. I don't know. Um, but but that was really cool. I'm glad that that happened. Yeah, I think you get full credit for that one because she's flying using bug powers, which is, you know, distinct from flying because she's being carried by somebody or whatever. Yeah. Um, so. So, yeah, I think that's um, I think that's full credit. Yeah. So my new ones. Um, first, I'm going to say that Genesis is a cauldron vial cape thing. Um, my, my line of thought here is that we know Siberian is, and Siberian has a power to project herself. And I think, I think the text somehow connects dots for you on this one, um, in a very subtle way that I think they mention. I think they mention when they're thinking about Siberian's power that maybe it works like Genesis's. And I think that's an intentional connection to get you thinking. Here's two powers that operate kind of similarly, and we know one of them is a cauldron cape, so maybe the other one is. Um, so that's my reasoning behind that one, um, which doesn't really give me any more insight into what is going on with the travelers. But uh, but there it is. OK. And then my other one is that uh, uh, Amy's choice to 
Amy's, Amy's bad choice to uh, hypnotize Glory Girl and work on her will backfire. Something's going to go wrong in this. I don't think she's going to do... I don't think she's going to fully um, bring Glory Girl back to normal. Um, and, and the result of that is going to uh, uh, and allow Amy to be dead. <laughs> she's going to die. Um, that's my prediction there because I think... Like we've seen her kind of come to the end of her arc, uh, as it were, and she might she might play some role in the story before that, but I think she's she's very clearly crossed that line, and I don't think there's any coming back from it at this point. So um, she can be removed from the story <laughs> at this point. Um, so that's my prediction there. Cool. All right. Very interesting. Okay, Scott. So that wraps up part one of Arc 14, Prey. I hope everyone enjoyed our discussion and hearing Scott's reactions. As always, we appreciate your feedback, and we're always trying to improve. So let us know if you have any advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's episode. Yeah, you can reach out to us via email at uh, gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. Uh, my personal Twitter is at scottdaily85, and Matt's is at mordinamail. And mine is spelled D-A-L-Y. Um, Matt's is spelled away oh yeah it's we got letters um if you're not already subscribed to we've got worm we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode you can find us on itunes stitcher youtube google play and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts and as always you can find this all the other podcasts we do and all of our writing essays film and tv criticism and more at dailyplanetfilms.com um i saw transformers 5 last night and uh i'm gonna write a review on it because it's the craziest thing i've ever seen all right (laughs) so look for that hopefully a book-length essay <laughs> not quite so uh, we, we also have a patreon page patreon.com slash daily planet films that's d-a-l-y if you like what we do here and want to make sure we keep doing more of it consider donating a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford also while you're over at patreon.com please make sure you stop by wildo's page and toss some money there because he's the guy that makes this whole thing possible yeah and and as always if you're one of those that can't spare any extra cash we do completely understand but there's still uh tons of ways to help us out you can share the podcast with all the other communities you're you're available and we're always trying to find new people um that maybe like worm uh or or have never read worm so share share this with them it's a perfect time to get back into the world of, of worm and uh and and we would really appreciate it um also if you could take a moment to rate and review us on itunes we would really appreciate that too uh every week we read one of our wonderful reviews and i'm, I'm starting to run out of them matt so we need some new reviews guys we will read yeah. you um, so this one is from jeffrey b um, who says these guys do an incredible job of going deep into one of my favorite stories of all time if you have any interest in worm or even incredibly good literary analysis please listen to these guys and their incredible insights and Matt, that's like three Incredibles in two sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't seen this many Incredibles in one place since Disney Pixar's 2004 <laughs> film. That was a joke, everyone. I'm really yes. good at this. Um, thank, thank you so much, Jeffrey. And thanks to everyone else who has rated and review us. Each and every review, like, it really it really does help. Like, I'm not, I'm not kidding with this. Like, the more reviews you have, the more exposure you get on iTunes, and the more people we can bring to this excellent book. So, so keep it up, please. Yeah, and it always feels really good for us to hear that kind of stuff. So next week, we're going to finish up the last few chapters of Arc 14, Prey. See you guys next time. I can't wait. I can't wait. I know. Bye-bye, everyone.